Welcome to The Checkup, brought to you by Barry Nelson's Health Law Team. The Checkup is a series of interviews, case studies and stories with some truly interesting and innovative people from all kinds of backgrounds, lawyers, doctors, authors, cyber experts and more. Together we provide a regular dose of all the latest happenings in healthcare and tackle some of the big issues within the industry. If you'd like to hear more, make sure you subscribe on Podbean or Apple Podcasts. And if you'd like to get in touch with our team, head to bnlaw.com.au. Welcome back to The Checkup. My name's Sarah Carlisle, and I'm a senior associate in Barry Nielsen's health law team. Some of you may be familiar with the story of Kelly Lane, a former Australian water polo player who made headlines throughout the country when her baby, Tegan Lane, mysteriously went missing, sparking a coronial inquest into her disappearance. The police investigation and criminal trial which followed continued to attract media attention and in December 2010, golden girl Kelly Lane was convicted of murder and sentenced to 18 years in prison. At the end of 2018, more than 20 years after baby Tegan Lane went missing and nearly a decade after the conclusion of the criminal trial, An ABC docuseries exposed the case of Kelly Lane has sparked renewed interest in the story. Following on from this docuseries, today I'm bringing you the first episode of a three-part podcast series exploring Kelly Lane's case, including the maternal health issues arising out of a case like this, the psychology behind cryptic pregnancies, as well as recent amendments to Queensland's abortion laws. In today's episode, I'm sharing a recent interview with Dr. Barty, an obstetrician and gynecologist who is currently working as a senior staff specialist at the Mater Mothers Hospital in Brisbane. The Mater is one of Australia's largest and most experienced maternity health service providers, delivering more than 10,000 babies every year. Dr. Barty and I discuss the unique nature of Kelly Lane's situation and the curious issues it raises in the context of maternal health care at a busy maternity hospital. But before we dive into our chat with Dr. Barty, let me bring you up to date on Kelly Lane's case. And let's look at what it is about her story that continues to captivate us. On the surface, Kelly Lane was a happy, successful and well-liked young girl. She lived with her parents, she was an Australian water polo player, and she truly seemed to warrant the title given to her by the Crown during her murder trial. She was a golden girl. Throughout the course of the coronial inquest, police investigations and criminal trial that followed, it became apparent that hidden beneath the surface was a very different reality. Kelly had not one, but five secret pregnancies. She had two terminations as a teenager and subsequently carried three pregnancies to term. Her family and friends, and indeed the fathers of the babies, were all completely unaware of the pregnancies and the births for many years after the fact. Shortly prior to giving birth to her second baby, Tegan Lane, a 20-year-old Kelly presented to the Auburn Hospital alone, unknown to the hospital, and with no record of any antenatal care. She delivered on 12 September 1996 and was discharged with the baby on 14 September 1996. What happened to baby Tegan Lane after 14 September 1996 remains a mystery. Kelly says that she handed the baby over to its father in the hospital lobby and never saw them again. She claims this occurred pursuant to a private agreement with the father of the baby and his then girlfriend that they would raise Tegan as their own. Ultimately, the web of lies Kelly had spun to hide her complex personal history from those around her 
began to unravel. What followed was a coronial inquest, a protracted police investigation, and ultimately a criminal trial whereby Kelly was found guilty of murdering baby Tegan Lane. Kelly remains in custody today. She maintains her innocence. The whole story is fascinating, but of particular interest to our checkup audience, it raises some important questions about maternal health care, both then and now. Now to my chat with Dr. Barty. Welcome, Dr. Barty, and thank you so much for agreeing to be involved in this podcast. Thanks, Sarah. Now, the first issue we want to discuss in the context of Kelly Lane's case is guidelines for admission to hospital, um, specifically when to admit and when to wait. Now, the Mater is obviously a really busy maternity hospital. On a busy day at work for you, how many babies might you deliver in a single shift? Well, um, a single shift could be up to 20 babies sort of thing. So, but that that's um, midwives and uh, doctors and that sort of thing. But yeah, it is quite busy. But you're involved in up to up to 20 deliveries. That's extraordinary. Yeah, yeah. So, well, I'd be aware of them, but I wouldn't be uh, actively um, doing the deliveries. But uh, so, yeah. Okay. Now, when when Kelly was pregnant with Tegan Lane, she first presented to the Ride Hospital in Sydney in early September 1996, complaining of pain and asking to be induced. She was unknown to the staff at that hospital, and there was no antenatal record available but she claimed her baby was due the next day. She also told staff that she had been receiving antenatal care in Perth and was only visiting Sydney at the time. The staff examined Kelly, assessed her to be at about 38 weeks gestation and sent her away. She presented at hospital on two further occasions over the following days, once more at the Ride Hospital and then at the Auburn Hospital, and she was finally admitted to the Auburn Hospital on 12 September 1996 and gave birth that day. In your experience, is this a common scenario, women presenting to hospital prior to labour commencing or women presenting to hospital and requesting an induction of labour prior to full term? So um, it's uncommon for someone to be unbooked presenting with those issues. However, we do see women in the antenatal clinic who request to be induced for various discomforts and that sort of thing. And we also see ladies in our pregnancy assessment centre who have got um, are uncomfortable and and sometimes will ask to be induced at, at that stage. Mm. But overall, it's it's uncommon for someone to present who's unbooked mm. with those those issues. Yeah. Mm. And even with the booked patients, um, have you ever experienced, Dr. Barty, somebody presenting and seeking an induction for reasons which you would class as convenience, I suppose, rather than discomfort? Do, do people ever present at hospital with burning commitments the following week? or um, They do. Um, and most, in my experience, most Common one is sort of, uh, things like uh, inadequate planning of their partner's leave and things like that. So, particularly the first babies, they might plan their uh, leave around the due date and things like that. And as we know, a lot of women go overdue with their first baby, and they'll they'll ask 
um, to be induced for that reason, or their mum might be coming from either interstate or overseas and things like that, and they've only got a selected window of time. Sure. And is is that something the hospital can accommodate in those circumstances? Generally, we do. It, it depends, of course, on the gestation of the woman. So uh, we'd be reluctant to do it before their due date. But uh, around the due date, we can, as long as the the, re, the, uh, the reason is valid for that. Yeah, yeah. Um, I guess a valid reason. Those those two examples you've given are fairly reasonable, and I can understand that. There's a there's some suggestion that in Kelly Lane's case, the reason for her presentation and requesting induction was that she actually had a wedding to attend. Um, Two days after the, on the fourteenth of September, nineteen ninety-six, which which she did attend. There's um, record of her having been at that wedding. Have you ever had anybody present at hospital and ask you for for induction due to a social engagement? I have, yes. Um, so that that does occur. Um, that wouldn't generally be seen as a legitimate reason, um, and. I suppose the staff weren't aware of the wedding and that sort of thing, but you did have to take into consideration the baby travelling to the wedding. And um, generally speaking, that wouldn't be considered a, a legitimate reason for what we call, a, in inverted commas, a social induction. Yeah. Okay. Now, you've touched upon this, but as a busy maternity hospital, um, if it's not a case for induction, so if the woman's presented requesting induction, but the decision is that it's not appropriate due to gestation or for whatever other reason, are there clear guidelines as to what to do, how to turn the patient away? So so MARTA is quite a mature institution, has got multiple guidelines and probably the most um, closest one to that would be uh, women in labour assessment and management. This obviously doesn't apply to Kelly. Uh, in terms of someone who's unbooked late, late in the pregnancy who presents, uh, then we will be. It's sort of understood that those patients you, you would be looking to evaluate them further. So I wouldn't. If if uh, my registrar resident spoke to me about someone like that, I'd make sure at least they had their antenatal bloods done, a full history. And if you're close to term, we would usually offer it admission. Uh, if they presented on a, a couple of occasions as well, that could be sometimes interpreted as a cry for help as well. So. But yeah, generally speaking, if they're close to, well, in the later stage of pregnancy, certainly in the third trimester, and they're unbooked and they present with um, symptoms like Kelly's, then we generally would admit that them. if they were earlier on in the pregnancy, we, we would not, but we'd sort of uh, certainly take their blood tests, arrange for them to be um, to have their booking done and, um, if, if necessary, offer them other supports. So, yeah. Yeah, so it sounds like you, you know, they might be given an opportunity to get whatever social supports or other support or guidance they need at the hospital, even if delivery of the baby is not an option at that time. Yeah, so I suppose in Kelly's case, um, she probably presented as a middle class, well presented person. I'm making some assumptions there that, and. 
with um, a history that the staff may would possibly have no reason to suspect wasn't correct. Um, some of the women we would see would be, and we still, if if we thought if she was unbooked in that circumstance, um, and um, we would offer admission, but some of the women we would see would be sort of in um, a different demographic that would present with um, being unbooked close to terms. Um, yeah. Yes. Um, so what what is the general, uh, people presenting as an unbooked pregnancy, how common is that and what is more the more general demographic you would expect to see that among? Yeah, it's 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 not very common in our area. Uh, I, I wouldn't have a be able to give you a percentage. Probably the um, situa- situations would be, and not to make big generalisation, but perhaps home people who are homeless who have social um, situations that um, like that, or um, potentially uh, sometimes people who have. Uh, Drug addiction, um, substance abuse issues. Uh, generally, not first pregnancy, but it can be the first pregnancy. Sometimes people um, a bit laxative with when they've had a few babies and sort of may not present for antenatal care. But that's, but that's usually an exception to the rule as well. So. Could it also be people who are already involved with the child protection system? Yes, yeah, that that's definitely the case. So I think. Generally, people, even though it's electronic these days, but people who um, are involved with the child protection system may uh, attend another hospital, thinking that um, there would be that they're less likely to have um, the baby removed from them. Yeah, so that so that's definitely a case. It might that be occurs, an attempt yeah. to fly under the radar by them. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, yeah, and and certainly you're right, Doctor, that Kelly Lane wouldn't have presented as a person who raised that kind of flag at the hospital. She was a young middle-class person. She was a semi-professional athlete. Um, So she certainly wasn't, um, didn't fit that mould. Now, are there any increased risks talking about patients who are presenting unbooked, whether they be within that demographic you've spoken about or otherwise, are there any increased risks to mother or baby when the patient is not only unbooked but hasn't received any antenatal care throughout the pregnancy? Yeah, there, there are. Uh, antenatal care is generally a screening process for abnormal pregnancies. So we'd be looking for um, things like preeclampsia, which is blood pressure problems related to pregnancy or, or babies that don't grow well. Um, risks of bleeding, that sort of thing. So if we, if the person presents without any antenatal care, they won't have had any of those things monitored. We won't know where the um, placenta is, so there's a, a risk of bleeding. And um, with the demographic we mentioned before, there's probably increased risk of viral conditions and, and other uh, other um, conditions that could have an effect on the mother and baby, sort of, yeah. And is, is there anything from an obstetric point of view that can be done at such a late stage in the pregnancy to... Um, reduce those risks or alleviate those risks? Yeah, so we, we do the blood tests first of all, which is a routine antenatal screen, which will test the blood count and blood group and, and for uh, the, the the other um, screens for um, syphilis, hepatitis B, hepatitis C, those, those side of things. We'd also 
do a portable ultrasound at the time, which would um, give us, a, if with the mother's consent for these things, of course, but we'd, we'd offer an ultrasound and that would uh, give us a, a rough idea of the gestation, plus or minus about two to three weeks, so that, so that we'd have an idea of the dates. And that's presumably how um, Auburn Hospital um, determined Kelly to be 38 weeks. We'd also look at the placenta and um, where the placenta was just to make sure there wasn't a high risk of bleeding with labour and, and then also probably assess um, within the reason, with the ability of the person scanning to just check the, how well grown the baby was and things like that. So we'd be able to assess those things and um, um, certainly... Uh, the, the blood results wouldn't come back for some hours or a day or so, but the, the ultrasound would give us an idea of gestation or any other risks there as well as um, the woman's observations in terms of blood pressure and baby's heart rate and all those sort of things. Yeah, so, so it would reduce things. It would um, look at those potential issues at least, yeah. Yeah. Um, one particular feature of... Kelly, aside from all of those general risks that are, apply to any pregnancy, when she presented in 1996 to give birth to Tegan Lane, um, her report to the medical staff were that this was her first pregnancy and first child. In fact, the case was Kelly had had four previous pregnancies and previously delivered a child at full term, which she had given up for adoption. Um are there any increased risks when that background is not known as a clinician, um, being that it's not the first pregnancy, not the first delivery? Um, so generally with the second or subsequent deliveries, labours will be quicker and um, the actual second stage of labour will be faster as, as well. Um, so I, I don't... I think that specifically being a, a multi-gravid person having had babies before would increase, um, this would be her second baby, wouldn't, wouldn't increase that risk specifically. Um, it would obviously if you, um, if say she was asking some advice about uh, her labour or something like that, we might uh, tend to... To um, think that she'd be a bit slower being the first baby than the second baby, but I, I don't think specifically being the second baby would increase the risk. Is it um, about the time of labour? And you touched upon this before the guidelines for women presenting in labour. And yes, uh, um, is it more common now than it was, say, fifteen years ago, for women to be? Um, asked or it, for it to be suggested that women labour at home for a portion of their labour. So if somebody attended the hospital in early stages of labour to be told, and they and they live in a metropolitan area where access to the hospital is not an issue, such as Brisbane or Sydney, to be told that they can wait at home. And would that decision or direction be complicated if you thought it was a patient's first child, but in fact she might you might expect a fast labour because it's a second child? Yeah, yeah I think that's not, uh, I think that's a reasonable assumption, Sarah. The, um, we're probably, the, the way um, 
paternal health has gone last 15 years or so is sort of more of an emphasis on uh, midwifery care rather than the medical-based model. So, and uh, their midwifery focus is more on the normal rather than the abnormal. So, the, the tendency would probably be more to, to encourage to be at home for as long as possible. So, yeah, that, that could definitely influence uh, the possibility of delivering at home rather than uh, in, in this situation rather than in hospital, yeah. Obviously, it didn't occur because Kelly wasn't actually in labour at any time. But um, no, yeah, that that could have influenced the outcome, I suppose. Yeah, we were talking about the absence of any antenatal care, and you told us the kind of tests you could do to give yourself a little bit more insight into the pregnancy when someone presented without care. Um, if if the patient presented and said, "I've been receiving antenatal care in Perth," um, is there any way? that you would be able to access those records or would would you expect the patient to have any information with them to help you um, understand the course of their antenatal care in Perth? Yeah, so would normally, these days most units will have, a, or most, a lot of units are going electronic, but in the past um, and still a lot of units will have either what we call a handheld record or pregnancy health record, which is can vary between a single card with um, details of each visit and the blood test and the past history on it to, say, a document of 10 pages or so with uh, with handwritten details of the history. Um, and the electronic, often commonly with electronic records, the, woman will, the, the staff will print the electronic record for the woman to carry as well. So it would have been expected that, that Kelly would have had some details from the, the hospital in Perth with her and if not um, then we would uh, any hospital would generally what would any any hospital would try and obtain some information from that hospital um, regarding regarding the, her history and that sort of thing so yes and generally they'll have a handheld record and uh, that sort of things yeah and if somebody presented and didn't have the handheld record on them, would that raise any flags for you, or is that just run of the mill? People forget to bring that with them. Or when um, we first introduced the handheld record in Queensland, we um, it was if they didn't present with it, we'd send them home to get it. Um, that's I think from a legal aspect, not actually uh, considered appropriate things, but. Um, the vast majority of people would carry it, so it would. I think it would certainly um, would be a, a red belt that there's something funny going on. Um, but mm. yes, okay, yeah, okay. So the mother really is expected to carry that around with her and um, have it available. Yes, yeah. yes, definitely, yeah. yes, yeah, yeah. Okay, now um, fast forward to the delivery itself, Kelly's. At the Auburn Hospital, she delivers baby Tegan. It's an uneventful um, birth, yeah. relatively. As an obstetrician, when you said before you might, you said it was 25 babies in a shift, didn't you? You might oversee, so not actively be involved. But um, have, have you ever observed a particular demeanour during or after delivery that's caused you concern about the, the patient's welfare or the child's welfare? So yes, there are. I think, um, and particularly in a big centre like um, where I work, the 
it's generally a, a, a team approach. So I wouldn't individually be observing a person, but we would expect our midwives and residents and others to to potentially be aware of um, any uh, abnormal behaviour. The, the one area we're particularly um, focusing on is um, postnatal depression and, and purple psychosis. Um, so those sort of things, if they show out, then we would be be concerned about that and uh, and seek the appropriate attention for the woman. What was that second condition you mentioned, Doctor? Well, peripheral psychosis is a condition which um, happens. It, um, it can be. It's usually in the in the postnatal period after delivery, um, the first few days or sometimes afterwards, and where people um, can have a psychosis, have uh, delusions of um, things happening with them and, and which puts the mother and, and the newborn baby at, at some risk from that. Um, those women usually hopefully would be identified in the antenatal period, so women who've got a pastures of bipolar disorder, women who've had postnatal depression before, um, are at um, significantly higher, or certainly, sorry, not just postnatal depression, but purple psychosis. They've got a history of that, then they're at, at a high chance of that occurring again. So we would um, endeavour to identify those as well as. Just generally for postnatal depression, we do um, a, some screening tests during the pregnancy that will identify women who are more prone to depression or who may be depressed at the time. But, um, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so in terms of the team observing the warning signs for those conditions or those risk factors, how long is it generally now at the MARTA? What's the average stay in hospital for mother and baby post-delivery? How long does the team have to observe those things? Yeah, so I think it, as the years as I've worked, that it's that's got less each time. In in the past, when I first started, it would be sort of a lady having her first baby would stay in four to five days, and a lady having subsequent babies would uh, stay in three days. Now um, they may go home sometimes even straight within four hours of delivery um, if they have appropriate um, home care arranged. Um, average would probably be one to two days um, and first. And that's for an unco- uncomplicated birth, I yeah, take it. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. And what kind of factors lend towards a longer stay in hospital? What features does the mother or baby have? Yeah, um, that require the hospital to keep them in longer. Certainly, if someone has an emergency cesarean section, if they they will generally be need to stay in longer. Um, elective cesarean sections, not so much. Um, if the um, if the baby is unwell for any reason, the mother may will stay in longer. Um, if the mother is um, on any medication that the the baby may withdraw from, um, she'll potentially stay in, long, in hospital longer. Um, and any any sort of complications that occur, I suppose, if there's uh, um, infections or that sort of thing, then they'll, 
that they need to be treated and be observed. So um, if someone has a history of psychiatric issues and especially postnatal depression, then they would be advised to stay in longer than someone who's straightforward to. Mm. And are there, is there ever... Um just like you said that there were social issues and reasons you might admit a patient prior to delivery, are there ever social reasons you might keep mother and baby in beyond that one or two days? Definitely. So um, women with, as we mentioned before, who are under child protection or child safety, um, they they would stay in longer. Um, Women with, uh, with not good, Family support and that sort of thing. So yeah, the, and and the, potentially someone who um, is unbooked and that sort of thing, we'd want to make sure that her social supports are are in place before she leaves and she's got appropriate follow up and that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. I guess I guess in Kelly's case, the the only concern was would have been perhaps that she was alone. Um, so. There was no social support with her mm. at the hospital, and she was discharged um, with the child. But at the end of the day, as as the hospital is all you can do, offer the patient the opportunity to remain an inpatient. Can they self discharge with a child? Oh yeah, yeah, they they can. Um, I suppose the the fact that Kelly um, came in and. Doesn't sound like she had a support person with it all for the labour and that sort of thing. It's very unusual for someone not to have a support person with them. Um, they can, uh, as long as the, the baby has been checked and is thought to be be okay, and and um, the mother's thought to be okay, then they can self discharge. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Okay. Well, look. Thank you very much for your time. Um, that was all really interesting information and it was great to have your insight into those issues. I guess you've confirmed for us that Kelly's story is really a unique one. Yes. And it's not something you see every day. No. Even in, a, even in one of the busiest maternity hospitals in the country. Yes, that's true. Fortunately, it's not seen every day, yes. Yeah, yeah. Fortunately, that's right. And and although there's um, a number of checks and balances and tests and observations done at hospital in the case of a patient who's deliberately trying to mislead um, the hospital staff, from an obstetric point of view, at least, there's not much um, that can be done to combat that. No, I, I I suppose one thing we haven't mentioned is if if we thought there was something very um, strange going on, that it would not be unreasonable to inquire with the G, GP. Um, sure, but that that again would rely upon Kelly providing the hospital with her GP's details. Yeah, and her consent. Yeah. Yes, that's right. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well. Thank you very much um, again, Dr. Bade. Um, I really appreciate your time. You're welcome. We'll, um, we'll let you get back to your day. Okay, thank you. Thanks. Bye. As we heard from Dr. Bade, the Mater Hospital's approach to assessing and responding to a patient's presentation in strange circumstances like Kelly Lane's is holistic and it involves not only the obstetrician and clinical team, 
but also the midwifery and social work staff employed by the hospital, which makes plenty of sense. Following on from my interview with Dr. Barty, and in that vein, in the next episode of The Checkup, we'll be diving deeper into Kelly Lane's case and specifically exploring the psychology of cryptic pregnancies with a guest speaker from the mental health sector. Stay tuned. Stay tuned.